Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to Barn Blog, and here I am with uh, Nicolas Villarreal, um, friend of the show, common guest on the patron side of the podcast, um, about what is going on with profitability these days. Now, discussions of profitability have become somewhat uh, problematic for people, um, because on one hand, superficially, it looks like there's been major profitability gains in the last few years. There's definitely income hoarding, which I, I, I think we need to parse some concepts out because people tend to think income hoarding and profits are directly correlated and they're not. Um, but let, we also need to parse out why talking about this has become problematic on the left because um, there are two paradigms right now. Uh, Michael Heinrich's uh, Marx's Monetary Theory of Value, which um, is controversial outside of um, Heinrichians, and modern monetary theory's insistence that because of bad physics metaphors in 19th century um, economics in general, and Marx in specific, that ideas such as fictitious capital and uh, general profit rates are just invalid. Um, so let's let's deal with the conceptual arguments, and then we'll get into the details of what we're seeing right now. Sure. Um, I mean, I've always felt that like the, the the Heimerichian opposition to talking about profit rates stems from like their hatred of what they call worldview Marxism. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that uh, like we could, especially like the idea that we should look at like the bourgeois press or uh, statistics and that kind of stuff to get the, uh, a better understanding of how capitalism is working today, um, or that that's meaningful in any way, um, that the real project going on is in coming up with like a, a, a normative ethics for um, socialism. Um I mean, the, the opposition to profitability, talking about profit rates and that kind of stuff has been around for a long time in economics. It goes way back before MMT. I mean, occasionally you'll get stuff from um, big publications of, from like the World Bank or something when it's real bad. Like they did something after the 70s saying, yeah, profitability was a big problem. But for the most part, like in terms of academic theories and stuff, um, the biggest thing is deny tendency for the way of profit to fall. Um, the other thing is that, I mean, economics posits that um, profitability 
should be um, like economic profit should be zero, right? So that like questions about profitability aren't a real thing in like neoclassical economics because profitability as like an actual structural thing shouldn't be a thing um, that can be analyzed and stuff like that. Um, well, I, there's a couple you know, of different things there t- for me. For example, I will I will accept that Marx's particular incomplete arguments in Capital Volume 2 and Volume 3 about machines mm-hmm. being the primary driver of the profitability crisis are empirically sketchy as actual explanations for it. But I what I don't accept is a lot of people take from that this concept that it's an invalid concept, and they haven't looked at even later Marxist. Some of this has to do, if we're honest, like not just neoclassical uh, economics, but also in Marxist economics, was that the monopoly capital thesis people mm-hmm. who thought that the MCM circuit of capitalism was over, going back to Paul Sweezy, uh, also posited that there was no meaningful discussion of profit rates because we exist in an area of monopoly capital, et cetera, and so forth. Right, um, which is really ironic because the... The one time that the the machinery driving falling profit rates was a concrete, very real thing was in the 50s and 60s. That was when it was the most real. Um, And it it was also when monopolization was like the the biggest thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, that, that was a whole like bug, I think, in Marxist thinking at the time, Um, like this, this idea that uh monopoly capital had solved capitalism basically as opposed to like forcing it to blow it up uh, and they really should have thought through the contradictions there better um but i, th- I think that um and I, I i should clarify from what i said earlier i mean like neoclassical economics does have theories of like what like why profit like what income to capital is you know, like marginal uh productivity of, of, of capital and that kind of stuff but Mm-hmm. Or you have to, but it's not it's not well formulated. Most of this kind of stuff kind of got blown up in the Cambridge Capital controversies, um, and I mean nobody really has, I think, a good theory of why, like, what profits are structurally than like Orthodox Marxists. Or um, actually, I think that somebody does have a better theory, and that is. Ian Wright, um, who probably is the best one, uh, because a lot of Marxists have um, not talked about how profits are also structurally the costs of reproducing the capitalist class. Mm. Um, and that that's something that wasn't included in Marx's original formulation. Um, but so social reproduction of the capitalist class as a class is not in capital is what you're arguing there. Basically it's like a part of like the, as a, as a formulation of income um, mm. and, a, and a cost of production. Like he talks about it obviously, but he doesn't like when talking about profit, it's not there. Um, so one thing that I think people glom on to this about in Marxism, and we can go to the general. Okay. Um, right is that there was a lot of assumptions during the third period of uh, of the USSR that basically worldwide immiseration would lead to um, 
revolution. And in early Marx, actually, around in the 1850s in particular, you see in his letters a similar belief that he abandons. Um, uh, there are people like Andrew Kleiman, who I hesitate to mention because how much he personally hates my gut, um, is uh, who who say that this is not a change in Marxist thought that that um, Marx never thought that the amiseration thesis was the correct thesis. But it's hard for me to to reconcile that with what also socialists at the time believed up into the 1890s, right? It was a, it wasn't just, it wasn't just his letters of Marx. Um, it does seem clear to me though, that by the time you get the capital volume two and three, he doesn't really believe in the immiseration thesis as classically articulated anymore. Um, uh, the reason why that would matter for climate is there's a unit. There is because the argument that made by Donaskaya is basically, an argument against Althusserianism, there is a unity of thought presumed in Marx, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and while me and you have our disagreements about Althusserianism, they have nothing to do with that. Uh, in fact, in fact, if anything, I think the the epistemic the epistemic break theory is actually makes Marx too consistent too. Um, mm-hmm. There's not one clean break. There's like five. Yeah. Um, so the the issue though that that I see with that is there whereas a lot of automatic assumptions, even by people like uh people influenced by uh Heinrich Grossman, who I think is super important, um who think that capital will necessarily have a final crisis and that final crisis will make communism an inevitability. Paul Maddox Sr. believed this as well. That's clear in his what is communism book. Um it's unclear to me though that Grossman actually believed that because Grossman also developed the countervailing tendencies thesis where you would look at other things that could temporarily restore profitability in a closed system or anything that could lead to um, destruction of, of overstock, the you know, um, etc. So uh, the, the thing is that Grossman did predict that the that the the state planning of the 30s would be insufficient um, for re- for restoring profitability to the general system after the long depression, and he thought that that should have led to the class of capital, but he didn't bank on fascism or World War II. Yeah, um, so those. I mean, that's the the big thing is that if you didn't have World War Two, I mean, we wouldn't. Uh, capitalism probably would not exist. Um, it, like the, the, the profitability crisis of the seventies would have happened. Like, not just it would have been a much more global phenomenon, and nobody would have been uh, safe from it. Uh, but I mean, you still. Um, you still have pockets of underdevelopment that you could expand into, and maybe those could expand into sooner. But um, I mean, putting aside the question of how profitability relates to um, like a final crisis of capitalism, and, and just return to the immiseration thesis for a second, mm-hmm. um, I actually had a comment on my blog just the other day about this. I responded to um, about like even if like a classical immiseration thesis is wrong, there's still this idea of like increasing um, like kind of humanistic suffering from alienation and that kind of stuff. 
which it seems to be most of like what's replaced it in a lot of like ultra left circles. Um, and I think Heinrich and Endnotes, I include in that, both have that kind of outlook. Um, but the problem with that, and I think that it's largely driven by atomization in society, is that the difference between immiseration in terms of wealth and in terms of income, um, like it versus like a humanistic suffering caused by atomization, is that atomization actually makes it harder to do revolution or organizing or anything like that versus immiseration, relative immiseration can really increase agitation and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bunch of different things in there. So you have two different theories in Marx, uh, his theory of worker alienation, which is actually early Marx and often Mm -hmm. dropped by, uh, by Altisarians. But, um, but I think actually correct in that internal com- internal competition within within sectors of capital actually increases alienation, which means relative um, relative solidarity is harder to achieve. I think that I mean to me that's like empirically verifiable at this point in sociological yeah. studies. Um, uh, on the other hand. You know, and and this is where I agree with you. I would read in notes and go like, "Why the hell do you think riots would lead to what you think it would lead to?" Like, like we have no evidence for that. In fact, we have the evidence for the contrary over and over and over again, where um, the left will get into a riot cycle, valorize it, and then reaction will be the people who actually politically benefit from said cycle. Um, and we see that in the seventies, we see, we, we fucking see it in, in 1848. It's a long standing trend. Mm-hmm. Um, because the institutions that that riot would need to funnel into don't exist. And people who over-focus on spontaneity. And by this, I don't mean Luxembourgist. I mean, communizationist, uh, tend to just think that, for example, ecological collapse, um, uh, the increase of lumpenization, any of these other factors will be the thing that gels some kind of crisis communism together. Um, and while I think ecologically speaking, we may be in, we may actually be looking at the best case scenario being a kind of crisis communism. I don't think it would actually come out of those. Um, no, I mean, like when you think about what, like the the, the communism of necessity mm-hmm. of uh, in, in response to a crisis, it's not going to be coming from. I mean, maybe like riots will play a role in terms of like the response, but that stuff grows out from the state basically. Um, and I mean, that's also how Marx envisioned it that like the um, the crisis of monopoly capitalism would be created like. Uh, a necessary response from the state through expropriation and that kind of stuff. Um, but, I, but I also think it's important to think about this, um, like in how like people are understanding and responding to those crises right now. And that there's this discourse um, that I think the right is actually slightly winning about that. What's really needed is like a fascism of necessity um, that like everything kind of militarized shut down to preserve class society, um, which uh, I, this is kind of a, a stupid poll, but this is also why I, I kind of agree with the take that I don't know if you've seen the show Attack on Titan, um, mm. that there's a lot of 
this course about that it's basically that fascism of necessities um, of like you're, you're encircled by um, like humanity is fundamentally at risk by these monsters and stuff. And what is like the state organized to do, but um, militarize entirely to preserve the class society at the center of it. Um, but and I don't think that that's like the ultimate, like, like that, that idea is, is embedded in like public consciousness really well. But I think that the, like that communism, communism of necessity is like the actual solution in terms of like, what, what do we need for survival? Um, right. Because the surplus that goes to preserving that class society um, is surplus that could be going to preserve society as a whole. Um, right. But, it, I mean, let's look at that right now. I mean, I, I like to think about this. This kind of comes up in a book where I'm interviewing the author, the climate Leviathan book, mm-hmm. when he posits four futures. And one of the ones he posits is like total mobilization to save the current system. He calls it climate behemoth. Um uh, that does not deal with climate change, doesn't deal with, you know, necessary inequity. I think in the national conservative movement, what you've seen um, is a willingness to talk like they actually very similar to fascism classically to talk about throwing a bone to the working class, um, uh, aiding common people, setting up the ability for them to have families and whatnot again, but in a way that requires in a way that's actually like fascism and fundamentally not sustainable because it requires a lot of energy to go into both maintaining and improving the working class, but also maintaining the classes above it at their relative scale. Well, yes, they might get rid of some of the worst of the rentier capitalist, um, which is what we're going to talk a lot about today. Um, they won't be able to touch a lot of the other um, elements of society because it's a it's an explicitly collaborationist mode. But the problem that we have, I mean, let's be honest, is like a whole lot of the left is also just as collaborationist on class issues. Yeah. Um, uh, and part of that, I mean, people will call it the petty bourgeois consciousness. I think that's actually underselling it um, because it's not petty bourgeois; it's something else. The PMC thesis kind of attempts to deal with this kind of ham-fistedly as well. But what you've seen is the alienation and lumpenization of the working class to in most of the world. And increasingly, even in places, a lumpenization hasn't happened in China, but um, moving more and more of society into rentier and rentier-dependent positions is nearly universal. Um, and that's what I kind of think we have to look at today. One thing that I get pushback on is I like, and, and you would, you and I are going to talk about this, but we effectively agree is I'm like, look, profit rates on actually existing real commodities have been declining for a long time. There's a reason why things like few futures, which fell out of the market this week, like, and stuff well always consider very low yield bets that you only put your money into um uh when you were like drawing on retirement when you needed your money to be super stable because it's going to be super low yield but it's going to be consistent um if you look at the profit margins in those fields uh and real commodities even in energy commodities right like 
the assumption that because of scarcity, the value of oil would continuously go up was never really correct. And a lot of, even fortunately, even quasi-socialist countries like Venezuela uh, banked on that. Um, and then a lot of responses to that, even from leftists, have been conspiracy theories about the U.S. forcing Saudi Arabia to pump oil and then not pump oil as if the U.S. had total control over that. Unfortunately, a lot of the modern monetary theorists and stuff have also prompted people to believe that prices are set. Uh, this is Warren Mosler's theory, as some kind of going to on my show, by the U.S. federal government's purchasing power and their acceptance of, say, inflation is why inflation is happening. And if they, you know, um, but I, I've always pointed out to them that like food markets don't work like, say, U.S. labor markets do. Right. And that's their example. Well, I mean, um, you should we, we have to keep in mind even that uh, most of the oil market is priced in dollars and that's not going to. Um, like the U.S. buying up a bunch of oil isn't going to solve the problem because the U.S. dollar, like it, because of its role in like as a reserve currency, other people will also be be buying dollars back from like they'll just will just right. have to go Wait, send that back out. Which is also why people. Uh, uh, <laughs> there were a lot of people on the left talking about a de-dollarized world. And because of stuff like uh, Putin asking for payment in rubles. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me realize that even people like J.K. Galbraith don't know the fuck they're talking about. Because, I mean, like, because, for example, why does why is why is Putin asking for people to buy gas in rubles? It's not to make the ruble a reserve currency so that his government can get euros and dollars from the sale of rubles to buy the gas back. For them to purchase things on the international market that they need, like other than gas, which they have plenty of, mm-hmm. right? That's not a sign of de-dollarization. In fact, it's a sign of the opposite. And while it like stabilized the ruble, it also led to the increased value on the open market of the dollar. Yep. Which, which, and I heard leftist after leftist economists, whether they be Marxist, Leninist, or Keynesian or modern monetary theorists posit things that were just kind of ridiculous in response to that, right? But you and I have been also like kind of battling this neo-feudalism thesis. I think the neo-feudalism thesis, the techno-neo-feudalism thesis is interesting because it is actually onto something, mm-hmm. um, which is that most of our profits seem to be in areas that are fiscalized, and we're going to talk about that um, you know, today. I think, it's, um, I think it's very important to remember the physiocrats when we think about these things because, and they had this very important point. It's like the kernel of, like, this is the, like the first kernel of like real scientific economic thought of um, in order for you to like uh, have an economy of people doing other things besides just meeting their immediate needs, you need to create a surplus of uh, goods to like you create enough food you feed the, the people making the food, and then you feed the people doing everything else. And then those people create other outputs. And that's, I mean, it's it's thinking about how input-output tables work now. Uh, but you have to think about um, that circulation of inputs in society. 
Um, so when we think about like the industrialization and the development of capitalism, um, we have an immense, like uh, the, the um, wealth of capitalism is an immense accumulation of commodities. It's a bunch of stuff. And the first thing that you got to make is a bunch of stuff that feeds people, that facilitates them to do other things, that allows them to make more commodities. But the thing is, is that meeting people's needs, I mean, in order for you to get your inputs, in order for you to get food and water and shelter and clothes and all that kind of stuff, um, you have to sell something. And this, like, there's this um, immediate demand for you to be interacting on the market because of that. Now, the thing is, is that as we've developed and it's been a lot easier to create those things. We've also simultaneously developed a need for like people to come up with things to do, to create these whole other non um, like productive sectors. Um, mm. Like that is a necessary part of capitalist development. Um, as you've like created more and more surplus, you need people because you don't have any other way of organizing society and getting people to do like worthwhile things. They have to be, um, yeah, find this, some way to interact on the market. Th- this is the problem with Graeber's assertion that bullshit jobs, for example, are basically an ideological project. Uh, they true. serve a concrete thing of which is right. feeding people. Right. Like, and if you, like, you know, if everybody dies, you don't have a market. I mean, capitalism is evil, but it's not that kind of evil. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, even for the surplus population, right? I mean, this is why highly inefficient, uh, Government things like prisons, which, by the way, are some of the most inefficient government things ever, yeah. um, are tolerated by capital, particularly in the cores of capital, because it does something with uh, what would be a dangerous, unstable part of the population because of its because of its bracketed out of productive capacity and the ability to feed you know, itself. Yeah, you know, that so. is like one of the most literal parts of like having to make up stuff to do because in Virginia in particular, there is a law that says schools, public universities and like element, like all public schools have to first look to prisons to buy like furniture and office equipment and stuff. Um, so they like they're, they force them to do that. Right. Uh, I mean, and, and the amount of productive work in the United States that actually happens in prisons is, is poorly understood. And it's quite a bit, believe it or yeah. not. Um, uh, but it is done at very, very low cost margins because while technically, I mean, the, the 13th Amendment does allow you to do that for free and, and basically is legalized slavery. In most cases, most states do not actually do it truly for free, but the prison labor operates at a, you know, at a wage and recompensation that's way below anything that would be legally allowable. Oh, yeah. Um, like they, they'll capital. give you... Like they do some stupid like legal way of getting around it. They're like they'll pay you the full wage of like minimum wage or whatever, and then uh, what's it? They take it out of your paycheck. Um, it's like they reduce it. Um, what, what's the word for that? When uh, they'll like garnish your wages yeah, for the cost go- of, of like of like the prison stuff that you're doing. Yeah, um, and then give it to you for the commissary and the commissary environment of like a dollar to every six or seven dollars earned. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. Um, I mean, actually, you know, it's interesting because the left 20 years ago was actually better at talking about this than it is right now. 
Um, partly because the cost of prisons has gotten exponentially too high, um, even for, you know, coinciding. That's also becoming true for school, by the way. One of the things I've pulled from David Blacker is like the, it's neoliberal extension of training in public education, which, which, by the way, I mean, from a libertarian perspective, and I think they're not even wrong about this, is effectively uh, cost farming. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, they're, they're creating costs to the, to the state, right? Like, that's what they're doing. Um, that's why, you know, and increasingly it's cost farming back onto the individual and debt peonage. Um, but the reason why they push this... And it, and the reason why, like, there's been push for things like uh, mandatory schooling to 18 as opposed to 14 or 16, um, it isn't just because of the inhumanity of shit like child labor. It's also because they don't want the instability of the of the, of that many people having nothing to do while they're unemployed. Yeah, and that's um, why we had like the unrest in 2020. Mm-hmm. It's it's what because there were so many people unemployed that didn't have. Yeah, they uh, could actually participate in it. Yeah, and exactly. I, I think like people under people like when people would tell me that we were going to see those riots again in 2021, and I was like, no, you're not. Like, yeah. like too many people have to go back to work. Um, they just don't have time to participate. I'm going to go um, to a like a big riot after work as uh, I'm going to take a nap. It's you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. It's you know, and that that's been the problem also with the planet lockdown liberals. But um, and by that I mean <laughs> all the people who wanted like who thought the answer to COVID wasn't like massive re- infrastructure reinvestment, um, which is what we should have done. Um, although it's very hard to do for reasons of complexity, and I could go into that another day. Um, uh you know, like reinv- redoing the evac systems, you know, stuff that we actually did, for example, the, the design of buildings changed after the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. right? But one thing I point out to people, and this is where my other, this is where my non-Marxist systems theory stuff comes in, is we're building infrastructure for the first time after the Spanish flu. That happens after, you know, you know, in the 20s. Um, it's a very different thing, and actually much more expensive and costly to completely redo infrastructure than it is to just build it. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but that actually gets into some of the issues that we have with profitability because there's less and less low hanging fruit for which production can easily uh, go into. It's the entire reason for me when people were like push back on this where I'm like, how do you explain what happened with the United States after World War II if you don't think this profitability stuff matters and overproduction matters? Because what we created um, in the Keynesian internationalism of the 50s, which you know allowed social democracy in Europe and Fordism in the United States to really take off, is building new infrastructure because the infrastructure was destroyed in war with over with production capacity in the United States, selling it for cheap, but still selling it. Um, thus having a new market to grow into having profits out of physical reproductive commodities, reinvesting that. And as soon as that project was done, almost, you know, uh, like you're looking at a decade, right? Um, the competitive advantage of the United States starts to somewhat decline. Um, and once you see that, 
what you also see is that largesse not being spread to other places. Now, some of that is a racial project, but um, people try to explain it in just racism. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really explain it either. It wasn't just racism why they why they overexploited and underdeveloped Latin America. It was also that they were, it would have been more costly for them to do after they'd already done Europe and the capital infrastructure wasn't there. Not just, I don't just mean the physical infrastructure here. I mean, like the cultural infrastructure, there were still too many peasants and stuff that existed. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, the, the liquidation of the peasants um, is a lot of why the 60s, 70s, and 80s were semi-genocidal in Latin America. Like, this is something that I think you have to look at. But I want to get back to the developed world here. Let's talk about profitability. I've been talking about one of the things about this fiscalization is fiscal profits, uh, because they, they really are just numbers on paper, basically, um, uh, can be productive on margin, but they, they have diminishing returns, but you can lead to a lot of income hoarding. And it is, and I think. What we've seen, particularly since 2008, is um, the the so financialization has been a huge part of the seeming of the seeming return of profitability since the 1970s. Most Marxists, unfortunately, have seen this almost solely as a political project. No, uh, because is it actually? It's even a concrete like uh, political economy reason to that that. Um, like the, in order to even have globalization, in order even to put production into China and all that kind of stuff, you need financialization. You need big liquid derivative markets and um, and debt markets and that kind of stuff. You need to have uh, forex markets that are developed enough that you can do these all these things. Um, and that requires a bigger financial sector, more people involved, more um, sophisticated bank operations. Um, so there, there was a real concrete reason for all of that stuff, um, as well as like the, uh, I mean, the kind, of, the kind of bullshit job kind of stuff, the need to to find something to do. Um, it was not just uh, a, a a pure political choice. I mean, it was a political choice, but one around a uh, concrete like program of political economy of, of of, um, of how they're going to do things now in order to preserve profitability. Yeah, I think, and I think people miss that. They think it was just a cynical ploy, mm -hmm. um, which it kind of was, but not entirely. Um, that they needed to be reinvestment schemes, and there needed to be way to valorize capital. And people realized that costs were going to get too high. And and this is where I. I push back on a lot of liberals or even Marxists who think the problem is just deindustrialization. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, if you reindustrialized, for one, actually, the deindustrialization of the United States is, is actually misstated. What has actually happened in the United States was offshoring until automation replaced most of production capacity. So people think that we don't produce shit anymore, and that's fundamentally not true. And when you look at the U.S. and, and say, China's supply chains as separate and independent entities, it's actually confusing because we finish Chinese work and vice versa. Yeah. Um, no, I, but I, I would introduce one wrinkle into that. Mm -hmm. In that something did fundamentally change. It didn't change fundamentally with NAFTA or 
the seventies or whatever, something did fundamentally change after 2008. And we saw that for the first time, labor productivity manufacturing in the U.S. completely flatlined and started to go down. Right. Yeah. Through my entire childhood, labor productivity was rising rapidly. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, it crashed. Now, I had always been people have been talking about even up to 2008. that It's weird. Labor productivity is going up and up and up and wages aren't. And I'm like, well, yeah, duh, that's relative. That's like relative exploitation, my friends, like mm-hmm. relative exploitation is getting higher. Um, so what's interesting about this whole argument against fictitious capital though, and, and all profits are real or whatever, is that this can have effect on the material world. So why do people build upper middle-class homes in the 2000s and then encourage people to take out loans that they knew were unviable for them. It had to do with high returns on the initial bond sales and bond markets um, and these kind of, you know, packaged bonds. But that drove development. Like that, that was a perverse driver of development because that wasn't what was needed. They needed more moderately priced homes and more multi-unit drillings and, what, and whatnot. And they weren't building that because it wasn't as effective as an instrument for bond collateralization. Um, yeah. I, but, but that's all bullshit. Like, it's not real <laughs> profits. Like, the thing is, and, and why we call it fictitious capital is anything happens that are, interrupts that system, mm-hmm. it falls apart because it's not producing anything to reinforce itself. That's right. why it's called fictitious capital. It's not because, like, the profits aren't real or this doesn't have an effect on the material world. Now, I think this is a very fundamental problem of overaccumulation that mm-hmm. like you can as if you're like involved in the finance industry, you can make a lot of money from just like the, the, the rise of the stock of like financial capital as a whole of, of like the M2 or the, uh, the mm-hmm. M prime uh, side of the circuit. And that but that if if but if like capitalists who nominally and like who actually control that money decide to do something with it it scrambles the whole system um because it now you've because the the inherent logic for most of the business cycle is that we need to invest this money we need to make returns on it and they're going as like the the amount of actually profitable things you can do with that is kind of all taken up um because in it like basically the is the the money goes into it, the prices go up on terms on the finance side, and you're no longer profitable from a financial perspective. Um, and you have to look at riskier and riskier things. Um, and it's it's very weird. Even like there's it, a big difference between what's going on between 2008 and what's going on now. It's very strange. Is that in 2008 or in the lead up to it in 2006 and all that stuff. Um, capitalization rates in the real estate industry were really high. You could make a lot of money off of it. That's not true now. Capitalization rates are really low in in the uh, real estate industry, and it's still having the extreme like price pressures and all those crazy things going on. Yeah, and uh, while there does seem to be a correction actually coming on the horizon, it does. Yeah, it's not gonna look well, the same. I mean, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I think I was just shared a graph earlier today of like the ratio between um, rents and housing prices and the like it's reached the same levels as 2008, which was the, the absolute high that we have on data. Um, and it's go- it's not going to be pretty, probably. But unlike in 2008, 
<laughs> the rest of the economy is overcomplicated and in similar kluke scenarios. One thing I've been talking about is this formula crisis that we're in is an indicator of how this is going to affect the food markets in general. Right. Um, no, it's very interesting the differences because if we're not going to have a generalized financial crisis, that the like the finance the reforms that happened and the greater capital reserves of banks means that at not least not happen. here. We might have it in China actually. Yeah, but. yeah. Uh, I I mean I think they'll manage it okay because of like how powerful the state is and willing to act that they won't have our problems of being afraid of acting. Um, but they'll definitely have a lot of problems, and but more importantly the problems we're going to face are no longer going to be like, um, like MMT is kind of fighting the last battle here with like the, if you had really pumped out money and like sent people checks in 2008, I mean, they sent out a little bit, but if they had really done it, they could have spent their way out of the problem. You can't do that with what's about to happen. That the, the, the rising prices in commodities, in food and agriculture, those aren't going to go away no matter what you do, because they are physical like shortages. Yeah. And bottlenecks. Um, and you're the, this inflation. This, I posted something about this a year ago and people thought I was being alarmist. But I was mm-hmm. these supply chain breakdowns that started over COVID are not going to go away. Don't listen to liberals who tell you this is temporary. Um, and the, what, the reason why is financialization Plus the removal of stock, like some of this was avoidable, like the food crisis right now, we've been producing too much food for the world, even during the beginning of hunger in 2000, uh, we started seeing hunger problems again in 2015. Uh, What happened though, is most of the world food corporations decided that maintaining stocks, and this is only not true in China, and even China, there's a limit to this, um, was no longer worth it. So having stocks of back grain was removed. So you become more and more dependent on immediate harvest. Um, Well, now, I mean, even though Ukraine, for example, is a highly productive part of the agricultural economy, but it's only like between three and 5% of world agricultural inputs, right? Why is it having that much of effect? Why is like North Africa maybe starving because of this? Um, And it's because no one's been doing stocks. Of food, like we haven't been requisiting and saving grain. The exception, and and people, I, I maybe you're more optimistic about China than I am. I'm not at that at that optimistic about this. How is China? But China does not have enough viable land to like if they actually have to dip into their stocks for many many years in a row, they're they're screwed. But they actually have them. Um, yeah. No one else really does. Everybody else well, has given up strategic reserves. It depends on the commodity because we actually have very large strategic reserves of stupid stuff like cheese. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but we don't have strategic reserves of fucking wheat. Yeah, <laughs> no, we got rid of them because they were too. We sold them all to the Soviet Union, actually, which is actually right. pretty funny. Um, but it, it like this. It's actually even funnier because when I was researching my stuff on like the Romans mm-hmm. of the Three Kingdoms and that collapse of the Han dynasty, one of the things that screwed them over was that they abandoned grain stockpiling as a price stabilization strategy because to privatize it and gave more power to the landowners who were actually running things. Um, and it's the same kind of thing is that once you remove the stockpiles, this gives a lot more power to the corporations when things are in shortages. 
uh, which is what they but, want. But that, yeah, because they can they can have monopsony pricing and artificially increase their profits. But but there's a problem with that mm-hmm. is is that that can that causes a wet cream game and and uh, and and cost push pricing. Which actually leads to eventually general inflation eating up the profits anyway, mm-hmm. right? This is this is this is why people have have pointed out. Um, I'm trying to forget uh, the 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 economist who was drawn on by the forex people for this, but uh, the multiple people pointed out that unless other businesses are also raising prices, businesses are actually hesitant to raise nominal prices. And the reason why is unless there's general conditions for it, it angers their, their buying base. Right. So for example, the greatest example, of this is like uh, the real cost of games, like of like Nintendo games or whatever have been dropping forever um, until they figured out how to turn it into subscriptions. Right. Um, and the reason why um, is that, the price was set at between 50 and $60 in the fucking eighties and never changed. Like okay. it did finally go up a little bit cause it had to around 2008. Um, mm-hmm. that's when you saw the, the initial prices pop up from like, uh, 50, uh, 50, 60. And then they figured out how to platform it and stabilize it. Okay. People have not been paying attention to the fact that I've been trying to get people to look at. There's a reason why everyone is trying to go to rent models because the commodity profits are too low in a physical commodity and mm-hmm. rents are at least stable. Like that's why they're doing it. Now, the reason my pushback on the techno neo feudalism argument is like that works for a while, but if the entire economy goes that way, it would all fall apart. Yeah. Like there's no like, and the reason why is actually quite simple. And it's like back on based on what you said, it's actually about fucking food. Um, Actual fruit feudalism is based off of a subsistence food production society that can have booms and busts in rapid cycle, but because of the booms and busts basically cancel each other out to the relative population, which also feudal economies and ancient economies actually do operate by Methusian calculus laws is not unlike modern ones, because the population will die off effectively to, to stabilize. Um what you see is a fairly steady state market with at most a growth rate of like 1%. There'll be rapid growth in some periods and rapid decline in others, but overall it's kind of a historical wash. All right. It's remarkably stable for a system that is basically incoherent as anyway, as I've talked about with Chris Wickham, like the Chris Wickham's research indicates that like feudalism is not a particularly coherent mode of production. Um, it's a bunch of different modes that basically don't work, but it, but this actually comes into application. That ends with the agrarian revolution in, uh, which is a different agrarian revolution than the one that like I always talk about. But in 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 the United Kingdom, right? I'm kind of a Brennerite on this because that's when you see this stuff that's coming out of the Italian city states actually be applied to food on a mass scale, and you see that in England. Um. Okay. Uh. Then you have the reinvestment in machines, et cetera, that you have in the Industrial Revolution, et cetera, and so forth. But what is techno-neo-feudalism actually built on? Who's making the fucking food? Yeah. Like, that's what I started asking. It's not going to be built on Urbit, I can tell you that much. Exactly. So it's like, so you, like, 
you guys look at all these superficial rentier economies, and also you're not taking in the the massive energy infrastructure to keep all this internet stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which which could be done in a different way. It could be done in a way more efficient way, but it's not. All right. Um, so you're not looking at that. You're looking at these rentier economies, but not going okay. But like the food markets are falling apart, and now it's really beginning to show up that they're mm-hmm. falling apart. Even during COVID, they were relatively robust. But all it took was taking one area out because everything has been converted into flows, and climate change has been reducing uh, surplus capacity of wheat and major producer countries, us, India now for a while and uh, ukraine is a little bit more stable in that regard uh, as is russia um i said i throw this out because what i saw two weeks ago and i was just looking at stocks right is the food futures market fell out and then i was like we're fucked (laughs) like like you know like like and what is interesting is if you read financial analysts like risk like investment risk analysts they're talking about this and yes it is finally beginning to trickle in a little bit on the second page of the new york times but it's not being talked about a lot people aren't focusing on it or they're just focusing on uh well india cut its wheat exports well why Mm -hmm. it wasn't just because india is being a dick Mm-hmm. Right, like, they need that food, and they're having their own harvest problems right now. And it uh, looks and, like they're going to have food riots. Like, yeah, and this is like businesses are realizing that how fucked they are. And this happened with semiconductors a year or two ago, and like everyone else is kind of figuring it out now as well. Is that we need to invest in stuff. We need to build up this capacity, and we need to have excess capacity in some places. And the militaries are doing this too in logistics, um, and the, like the. Uh, what this is actually very interesting is that even though up and like there was uh, like the profitability only started declining year over year, the first quarter of this year, 2022, um, the actual uh, after like investment income, the actual money that capitalists could spend has been going down for like six months before that because investment has been going up finally. And this could be like a new paradigm of investment that like companies are aiming to make the whole point of like the, of neoliberalism of like the, the reforms after the profitability crisis was to prevent this because increasing like investment, like in the fifties and the sixties and, and is that machine driven uh, tendency for the rate of profit to fall cycle. And that's everything they're trying to avoid, but now they have no choice. Right. And the, the, like the, those investments are happening. And like the the cap the profitability the actual income going to capitalist class is going to have to go down somewhat. And but then you see fucking leftists who should be the best on this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, start using literary arguments to. I mean, I'm serious to yeah, avoid looking at actual profitability rates because it would imply certain things that they've been saying is not true. One of them being that. Uh, one of the externalities of neoliberalism was the fact that all this, all this massive, uh, and it's not just for the U.S. by the way, all this massive uh, trade that was financialized was dependent on offsetting that and massive military apparatuses. And I pointed out that, like, 
why has it why did the end of Fordism and social democracy not lead to the shrinking of the state? Because it didn't actually, it led to an exponential growth of the state that we only had seen priorly after World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. So why did that happen? And what you look at is like, oh, we need more like fiat currency isn't based on a commodity. We all agree with that. Well, what's it based off? Projective force. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. People always talk about like, oh, like most of the like um, they complain about how government spending that like, oh, it's not the defense industry. It's actually all these benefits and stuff. But if you look at government contracting, two thirds of all government contracting money go to the defense industry. Mm. And that's it. It's like this is what it's actually building. This is like it's actual the institutions and organization is creating. Um yeah, which is also weird to me as a separate side note when people talk about a civil war and just like pretend the political factions in the United States could go gunning with each other without the world's ma- most massive military just sitting by and allowing it to happen, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's not just going to be like people talk about like, oh, you need like soldiers on every corner and stuff. Like, no, the, the military is very sophisticated at social control and doesn't thinks about this a lot. It's harder to do it in a foreign country like Afghanistan, where you don't understand, like people on the ground don't understand the culture as much. Right. It's also hard. It's also like the symmetry of the symmetry of force is different. So, for example, in Afghanistan or even, frankly, Russia and Ukraine, Mm -hmm. the Ukrainians can take five times the losses and not be demoralized because it's zero sum for their identitarian existence. Like if they don't do this and totally allow it, they will cease to exist. And that was true in Afghanistan as well. That's that's the uh, rule of fourth generation warfare is like occupiers versus occupies. The occupies will are at a are at a Clausewitzian disadvantage, but they have every incentive to fight for longer and harder because they're at their 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 self understanding and existence and sometimes literal existence is based off of it. Whereas the occupier is not. So the amount of casualties being willing to take is different. Now, if you transfer that logic to an internal civil war, it's completely different because both sides have absolute survival capacity. And then Colossal rules actually apply. Um, I mean, it's like the the social control methods in the U.S., like we already have a huge infrastructure of doing that internally. And we, oh, yeah. we're, we're very smart about making sure that we don't get to like a have, get, getting people to that calculation of survival versus the government. Because if you get to that point, if you're you're basically at war with the state and it's like you, you have to fight them for survival, you want to avoid getting to that point at all costs because right. then all shit breaks loose. Which is why, which is, I, I point this out, which is why the military told Trump to stand down. Yeah, in in 2020, and people didn't understand this, and I'm like, no, they they see that 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 risks actually putting people at direct odds with the state in a one to one capacity that can would, would totally destroy everything. Yeah, so so like they're going to tell them no, and this is also true. Liberals for your proje- our, our conservatives for your great divorce for your projective civil war, your weird. Um, federalist independent schemes when people say shit to me like well california can leave because it's one-fifth of the u.s economy it's no longer one-fifth of the u.s economy if it doesn't use the dollar Mm -hmm. like they don't understand how much this fiscalization in california is a highly fiscalized economy Mm -hmm. like uh even particularly um so i bring this all out because i'm like 
I like this has led to delusions on the left in general that are, that, to be fair, kind of marginal. But this doubling down on stuff like there is no such thing as like our pro- all profits are just, you know, fictitious profits. You, you, you're making a metaphor like the economy is a machine. Actually, no, we're not. Like it's when we say fictitious capital, what we mean is this is not being reinvested in the things that could produce other things. It is thus nominal. If you tried to valorize it all at the same time, it would be impossible because it's not. There's nothing to back it. There's no wealth to back it up, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's what we mean by fictitious capital. We don't mean that like it's like magically created and has nothing related to being real. As long as there's no external shock um, that causes people to want to valorize all at one time, this can actually go on for quite a while. Um, but the pro- but the problem is it also starts leading to non-investment into actual physical things, which is what we're seeing. And I want to show people this chart here. Um, you gave me a chart from uh, the Federal Reserve about net value added of corporate businesses, uh, net operating surplus versus net value added of non-financial corporate businesses, the net operating surplus, right? Can you? Yeah. I'm going to show this thing that you sent me from the from um, for people who don't know. Uh, Fred is the Federal Reserve Education. It's super useful. People should use it more. Unfortunately, it's usually Nico and Michael Roberts. I see signing stuff from it, and everyone else like kind of pretends like these things don't exist. Yeah. Um, so, except when it's convenient for 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 things. Um, but so, can you explain what this chart means and why it's important? I'm going to put this here. Yeah. So this is um, hey, this is basically I took the um. The, the net operating surplus overall took out non-financial corporations so we can get into all of that financialized stuff mm-hmm. and then show how much of that is as a share of the total um, operating surplus, which is essentially the profits. And you can see how it's been growing over time since the uh, um, basically since neoliberalism started. And, um, this, and then it crashes in 2008. <laughs> yep. Uh, right. uh, and then V-shape recovers. I think people miss this. Yeah. By 2012, it is almost back to its 2008. People don't understand how much the state, like the state pulled out all the stops to protect the financial industry, not anything else. Maybe like they did a little bit to protect the auto industry and a, little, a couple other things. But where they really pulled out all the stops was the finance industry. And this is like to make sure this happened. Um, right. And this, this led to this. Can we talk about why that is? I'm actually about to pull that up, but like, uh, I've been fascinated and it's been MMTers arguing me about this, this, this growth of these massive tech corporations that don't seem to physically produce anything like Facebook and Twitter, Twitter's never been profitable, but Facebook, uh, the Musk stuff, um, all this is in this time period of of fiscal investment by the government. Now, I realize that, no, QE is not them directly inserting cash into fiscal instruments. That's not what it is. It is a market function. But I've had MMTers pretend like it had no effect. And I look at this and be like, no, it definitely fucking had an effect. Uh, otherwise, I mean, th- I want people to look at this this could have been more severe than the 30s. Yeah. Look, compare. <laughs> like, 
they, they like they um I mean and part of the why the thirties well part of the why the thirties doesn't look so bad on here was because how severe everything else contracted. Right. Um but I I think that um like they, they need this stuff. They need like the um where all of this all, all of the accumulated wealth of like the M prime circuit needs to go somewhere. Capitalists live off of like the, the yield on that. Um, it, it's, and they, uh, it, it needs to keep growing or else they're losing money. And the, uh, putting it into like it, as it, as you get that accumulation, as you get late cycle, uh, where you, there, there's no longer easy pickings, it goes to these very speculative things of, and this, we saw this also in the dot com boom, very clear here of uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, of those big tech companies that exploded in terms of valuations. Um, and a lot of them were worthless. I mean, some of them turned out to be something. And this is kind of like, this yeah, is what. You can literally see this right here, too, guys. Yeah. Like, I want people to look. Like, this is visible. You see this fall. In 99, uh, 99, 2000, which I remember because all the tech bros didn't have jobs. And you see this kind of collapse after 9-11. This, this, my, my city in, in Georgia, Macon, really collapsed during this time period right here. All right. Now, not all the U.S. did, but there are certain places where they showed up and then they never recovered. You see a bleak rep around 2004 to 2007 and then an abyss. Because of the fiscalization markets. And what we see here is what was driving this were these fucking junk bonds. If we're honest, like that's why there was such investment in housing. And I remember thinking mortgage-backed securities. Exactly. I remember thinking this when I was like my brother, who was like at the time, uh, literally didn't have a job, got a home loan. And I was like, <laughs> what? Um and that was my first sign. That was like in 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I started writing about, you know, the why are they converting all, even like this old farmland and this productive capacity land in Georgia into uh, upper middle class housing when there aren't jobs for it here. Then um, there wasn't. And then a year later, and I wrote, I actually wrote this in a literary journal, <laughs> which is weird. Uh, and then a year later, it crashed, you know, um, it, it, this this time period is when I started to become a Marxist, by the way, like it was like noticing trends here. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this like this pouring money into things that are unprofitable um, built off of like the appearances and like hopes of like the, the high bourgeoisie, basically. Um, it, it This is what allows i mean this is why zombie companies are a thing this is why um like th there are so many companies especially public companies there's i think i shared a study with you at one point that mm -hmm. like a third of all public companies are not profitable and the reason why is because they have access to these capital markets and that the money is so cheap the money capital um, and why like the the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates low was so important for so long, um, and even if like I mean they're probably going to raise them, but I think they're going to have to chicken out eventually. There's big debates on what's going to happen, but like, well, I mean, here's the thing: what they're saying they're raising the rates for it can't possibly do. Yeah, and I mean, uh, what are they going to do? Like when they, w w 
I will say this. Powell has started talking about this in terms of Keynesian class war, uh, of class <laughs> warfare model of things where you have to drive down, uh, you have to increase unemployment to a higher amount and drive down wages. Um, but the problem is there's not enough fucking people for that to work either. Um, so they can't do that mm-hmm. really. And it be effective. It will have no effect on these direct consumer goods inflation, which is what people care about anyway. It won't have effect on inflation in healthcare and in, uh, in education um, either because they don't even factor that in and never have. So like, I mean, here's I don't what'll know what they think. It'll, wait, yeah, what do you think's going to happen? Because uh, they basically have been arguing we need to have a recession to save us for a recession, which has been weird. No, they're going to have a recession, and it's going to solve inflation. As like most goods are going to stop seeing prices go up, but the actual goods that matter of food, of energy, and a few other essentials are still going to keep going up because people can't lower their consumption of those. Right. Um, those are inelastic anyway. Yeah. And it's like you're going to fix the problem for people who have money to spend and everyone else is going to be screwed. And uh, I mean, we're already seeing like even right now, uh, I created some metric of um, like an index of how much real income is going to the capitalist class or to the working class as a whole on like a per capita basis, uh, whether you're unemployed or not, um, because that whole wage fund is for like workers, whether they're employed or not. Um of families and other connections and stuff like that. Um, and th- it's been going down the past like six months or something like that. Um, like workers are not better off anymore. Things are getting worse for them. Um, yeah, I and- mean, I, I've seen that backed up by study after study. In fact, I'll, I'll share this um, right now. This is from Michael Roberts. He pulled some money from the fe- uh, from the, and uh, I want the people to look at uh, labor share. Let's see if I can make that bigger here. Uh, labor share of uh, net corporate income. A net like. corporate income, right? Uh, it popped up a little bit um, in 2000. It, uh, it's really height was 2019. Um, it, it, it was pretty flat during 2020, even though you saw nominal wage increases. And it's been plummeting in a way you haven't seen since the early 90s. Um. And and I think people need to, to look at this because what it says is, uh, you know, the, and by the way, the, the, the share of corporate net income of labor share that's higher than most people realize. I think Michael Kleiman actually pointed out to me a long time ago that it, it is like 82 percent. Because like, yeah, you need the everyone needs to get fed. And right. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff to buy. Um, and the so, capitalist class is much smaller by comparison. So people who think this is just greed are wrong. Like, but, but we have seen this go down. Uh, The biggest drop was between two, was during the, the, the housing crisis, right? We see this huge plummet here between 2007 and 2009. And during all the Obama years, I want to, I want people to notice this because this is why people hate Democrats. Yeah, this is why Democrats are now only voted for by the wealthy, which I can show you a stat to back up to. Um, well, not only the wealthy, but but this is uh, I'll actually share that to you in a second. Um, but they are voted by they are voted for by the wealthy. Let's just say that. 
This is the first, 2020 was the first year where the wealthy voted more for Democrats than Republicans in aggregate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've talked about this too, that like the, in terms of like class preference for Republicans versus Democrats, the differences aren't that big. No, there's like not. even for small businesses, like it's 60, 40 or something like that. Um, and working class, it's like six, 60, 40, 55, something like that. And, and it's predictive based off the areas, like whether or not it's extractive uh, resources or, fi- or fiscalization. Fiscal stuff tends to be slightly more uh, Republican, although that may be changing if 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 Bezos and Musk are any indication, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, but look at this. I mean, you see it stabilizing. And this year, it's just, again, it's falling off the cliff, not quite to the extent of 2007 yet although it's at the same angle we just haven't had enough years to see where it's gonna go but it's already at such a low point that you're like well where can it go yeah i remember when people were getting real mad at richard wolf and certainly he said some silly things in the past year or so but they were getting mad at him for um talking about real wages going down because of inflation Mm. and like people got and it's less um it's like harder to deny now um but they were get so worked up if you talk about inflation at the beginning yeah oh no both Mar- both keynesians and modern monetary theorists were allergic to it in a very real way um are they would say bullshit like inflation was good yeah like that it, because it weakened the amount of debt the power of debt um and that's true but what they weren't factoring in is I was like, well, yeah, but not everybody's highly debt leveraged. That's actually a, a middle and upper middle class phenomenon. I mean, even right? if you are, you still have to buy things on a regular basis. Those right. are still costs that you like. That is even more immediate than your debt. Like you, exactly. that may stop you from getting wealth, but this is how you reproduce yourself like on a daily basis. Food didn't exist. Yeah. Like. Which, to be fair, food is not usually in net inflation stats either. But it, it was like they didn't think that it would go downstream in that regard. Uh, let me show people something else here, and I want people to look at this. So this this you sent me. Um, this is the gross value added of fiscal corporate benefits, uh, financial, financial corporate uh, of financial corporate benefits um, as a part of GDP. And um, I don't I don't think people understand the significance of this. Um, but when I talk about the reason why it seems like there's so many profits is because they're all fiscal and they're not attached to actual real commodities. This is kind of what I mean. But would you like to explain what this? Uh, this yeah, means? I mean, this is just looking at how much of uh, value added uh, for the finance industry is 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 a share of like GDP overall, and it's been uh, sticking up. It's almost at like nine uh, percent um, of the total, which. I mean, that sound, that may not sound like a lot, but you have to keep in mind, what is the finance industry? What does it create? And that's Nothing. creating, yeah, <laughs> and it's getting 10% of all of the, the wealth that we're creating in society. That's kind of insane. And that's from a low of like 2% in in like the 40s. Um, so it's like, uh, what is that, four or five times? Um, I. This is why Marx, okay, and, and I'm going to sound really, really hostile here because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who, when you talk about fiscal capital as separate from uh, 
from Capital in general since the time of Moshi Postone will scream structural anti-Semitism because fun- fo- because fo- focusing on fiscal capital is to promote bankers' conspiracies. But Marx's point, and this is even true in Capital Volume 2 and 3, is that fiscal capital is non-productive. The most it can do is gem- is generate liquidity. And you mean produce- finance capital? Yeah, fi- yeah, finance capital, excuse me. The most it can do is generate liquidity, but it, it absorbs more and more of a chunk of the profits over time. Right. Um, That's why interest rates go up. I mean, like there's, there's, there's all kinds of, and by mean private, not bank to bank lending. Um, Most of our ways of discussing this now either don't want to touch it because we are, because of stuff like complaints about structural anti-Semitism and sounding like the, you know, conspiracy loons talking about banks. Um, Or, uh, they don't want to touch it because it means that a lot of the a lot of the monetary instruments that people are saying by themselves would not work. And I will give MMTers this: they admit that you'd have to reinvest this in the in the material production and this, that, and the other. This is not something they bracket out in their internal writings, but it is not something they really explain or talk about um, in. When they when they do that, I'm just describing things, but our solutions would work uh, because uh, they have to assume that the state can command private productive capital directly, and that there wouldn't be democratic problems in doing that either. Like mm-hmm. it'd be, they'd be clear. Like so, one of the things about MMT that it assumes is that is that the state has total policy control. Um on where investment would go if mm-hmm. by by using uh monetary instruments mm-hmm. which is nuts yeah no and this is <laughs> I, this is the most you know actually weirdly enough has was arguing something similar to this that like blackrock is the one actually doing like the physical investments and this is real life socialism and central planning um but no like finance um, is it, investment in finance is to a great extent disconnected from um, like actual investment. Like de- denying access to capital markets can mean you don't make an investment, but make, actually investing in something has nothing to do with whether like that investment in like fixed assets, like actual stuff actually gets made. Um, and another thing is that a lot of this stuff, like a lot of these financial assets aren't even handled by private banks anymore they are handled by the fed and that hasn't changed anything um like the like the amount the huge amount of um assets that the fed owns now is insane and if you look at a graph of like financial assets of of like of owned by banks and those kind of firms it has flatlined since 2008 to a large extent because of that balance sheet up on the fed that they take it on instead so here's what I think that people are missing about why things are falling out in the economy and they think it's like this marginal interest rate raise, right? Which it is affecting things directly, but that's not what I think is really doing it. It's the end of quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. We've had quantitative easing in mass from 2007 to literally this year. And it's not just the it's not just the Federal Reserve that's been ending it. Almost all the highly invest the highly leveraged central mm-hmm. banks um, on the planet have agreed to end it. Europe, Japan, Australia. Um, 
the only place it really isn't is China because it's been doing something completely different because its currency is not fully floating. So people have not noticed that. I mean, I, I literally pointed out and I got pushback again from supposedly left economists who are supposedly on our side, right? That uh, that that it doesn't just seem insignificant to me that Facebook collapsed within a month of the end of QE. Mm-hmm. And well, and part of it was that they like that like once you realize how stupid and speculative the, the investment was, because they that's also when they stopped getting new users. Um, but right. it is like, but we're seeing like this, it's not just Facebook; it's the whole market. That's experiencing this, and the, like the individual news stories for like Netflix or whatever. Like this is a part of a larger trend that like conditions are tightening, interest rates are going up. It's harder to justify these investments, and right. it, it's it's going to it's be a big drawdown as a result. Which is also like you and I, and I will give the MMTers credit for this because they've been right about this, even though they're kind of wrong about why. Um, have been pointing out that like. There's a reason why serious people in the real economy have been getting into Ponzi scheme bullshit like MFTs, uh, Electrum, and there's money in it. Yeah, because it's because it's money in it. Like, but it's a quick pump and dump scheme. Yeah, and it always has been. Right, it doesn't function in any way the way that it's been sold to function. It's never been a viable currency. It's too unstable and deflationary. It's so deflationary with Bitcoin, for example. Uh, that you can start a transaction and and actually not be able to afford what you were trying to buy with it by the end of the transaction because mm-hmm. of the change of the value of Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Like, which, you know, so people, so people pivoted it in 2012, 2013 from a, from a currency replacement to a fiscal instrument that sometimes they would occasionally pretend was a currency replacement. But as a fiscal instrument, you were like, well, what does it produce? Nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. So people are dumping into something non-productive and not thinking about the fact it can't produce anything physical to back it up. There's nothing for it to do. So, you know, as long as it, it's like one of the, it's, it's actually like any sort of mass fiscal hysteria, like fucking tulips. Like there's nothing but it could do, but but it, to bubble. But there are people who invest now who are even saying that they should go back into Bitcoin because that bubble still might be more stable than anything else, which is scary. Um, yeah, it's like it's literally a memetic hazard that so long as it's like a a thing that's got your attention, it has value and it's it, it's a thing. Um, it it it, it is, is the animal spirits that Keynes talks about, like yeah. right? You know, yeah. But the moment that you're not looking at it, the moment you realize, oh, you know, it, 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 it is similar to like pyramid schemes in that way. The moment you realize, oh, this can't possibly be productive, it collapses. Mm-hmm. But the people who got the initial payouts, as long as they sold it, they're going to do well. Yeah, that's why it, there's so many crypto millionaires now, right? I mean, so, but to me, that would that would only be attractive, just like, for example, pyramid schemes started blossoming in the '70s for a particular reason, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people don't look at this, but I'm like, you guys aren't noticing that the beginning of things like Amway is directly tied to the last profitability super crisis, like, 
But I, w- I was thinking like, oh, this means there really isn't anything. When you hear serious people and not internet weirdos, like I started hearing people on 538 talk about crypto investment. I was like, we're fucked. <laughs> because usually when it penetrates mass society. Remember the when, Super Bowl commercials? Yes. Um, it actually is when the viability of it will become, will become qu- quickly apparent and it isn't viable. Yeah, because um, there's always the hope that everyone will start using it, and once everyone sees it and they don't, then it's dead. Right. It actually it 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 forces the final confrontation of its non viability very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and unfortunately, the crypto enthusiasts and propagators, my friends, you actually are some of your own undoers. Um, you, you collapsed your own Ponzi scheme, but seriously. The, the only reason, though, investors would take that seriously is because there's no there's no profitable enough investment elsewhere for them to do. I mean, this, this is what I've been like trying to point people out. When's the last time the average profit rates on a physical commodity such as food futures are and even that's kind of misleading because futures are not really the commodity, but still such as food futures are. uh Productive bonds are traditional, not you know, traditional old GM manufacturings outpaced even moderate inflation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Well, like, honestly, it's better for the whole world if it doesn't. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that that's true too. But this is this is like this is a major problem in capitalism yep. that these sectional schemes won't fix like i think mmt research has actually been useful but i don't think it's useful for fixing capitalism it might be useful for something that we do um in a non-capitalist economy but frankly for it to do what people who try to flip its descriptive to uh descriptive things and some of the descriptions are are already conflating nominal things that like i said the the idea that the federal federal purchasing power is what sets prices in the united states for everything is ridiculous mm-hmm. um but that is what war mosler believes to be fair not all mmters believe that but when you ask other mmters what's what's driving prices they are vaguer like they're they're just vaguer like mm-hmm. and then uh, you get weird stuff like when you point out that there's no way for MMT schemes to work in small scale economies um, because you assume national co- control. Uh, do you think Brexit was viable? Really? Are, are you know were you on Giannis Varoufakis's hopium? Um, and you will notice the entire framework's changed since then. Um, I, I say all this because. I've been looking at these food futures in particular, and in the long term, I think we are in deep shit. And it's oh, yeah. it's, it's for the reasons that you say. Well, consumer inflation is going to go down, except in energy and food. But since people's incomes relative are also going to go down, and they're going to be spending more money on energy and food, that's going to be politically destabilizing. And if I had to say anything. Uh, I say it's going to lead to a pretty right-wing turn because the left, unfortunately, and I know, my friend, you were in the DSA, but the DSA bears a large responsibility for this, um, has paired itself up to the Democrats at a time of right before a time of crisis in which it looks like it has no independent identity. And so the only people seeming to speak to this are not just conservatives, 
but national conservatives who are going to do what you said they're going to do, which is basically crisis, crisis, uh, crisis, national, national conservatism, AKA something that looks like conservative statism, which the last version of that we really saw with fascism on a mass scale. Yeah. I mean, I'm, well, I, I'm pretty pessimistic, but I do think that there are two tendencies there that I am optimistic about. One is the fact that the situation is forcing companies to make these investments. Um, but I mean, we did like the last time this led to a crisis of profitability, it blew up in our faces. We didn't know what to do about it because we didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and I, I am more pessimistic about the DSA now. I don't know what they're going to do, like the, if, if any, if they're going to have any effect on what's going to happen. Um, but and I definitely see a scenario where, like, the Democrats got very lucky in a way with like COVID timing um, mm. hitting Trump, and they're probably about to get very unlucky with the recession timing um, that's about to happen. And I think that there's a very good chance that Biden or whoever the Democrats run will lose in 2024. Um, so we're probably screwed in a bunch of ways. I do think that they're like the worst case scenarios are probably avoidable just because um, like the, the, uh, the really ugly wing of the Republicans that are more petty bourgeois um, will probably not be able to overcome some of the bigger obstacles put up by like the high bourgeoisie. Right. Um, I, uh, I I also think they're going to hit hard walls. Yeah. I mean, like for one thing, they're promising to be able to fix this faster than they can, and the Trump phenomenon won't work yeah. the same way. It'll be at a so. There is, I think, uh, there is an optimism there. I think in that they're going to hit a wall, and that the the failure of the right could teach everyone a lesson about something um, that kind of in a similar way to what happened uh, in China before the, the communist revolution that like the collapse, like that you saw, like the, there was a real ugliness in like the collapse of the last Chinese dynasty. Um, oh yeah. Like the mass death in the streets was real bad. Yeah. Uh, and it was out of that, 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 that kind of um, I think fascist desires and like really right wing ugliness that they had. Um, I mean, they had nothing, warlords. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, and, nothing, and nothing good came. Like all of like nothing, nothing actually came out of that that anybody wanted. Um, and communism was the only thing left. But we don't even have we. It, the thing order, is, though, but Dingism. I mean, I, I know we might be different opinions uh, about Dingism, but I think Dingism's actually also hollowed out the communist alternative too. Kind so, of, um, but I also. Yeah, no, you have you have hope in state capacity because you don't understand complex systems theory in the same way that I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that the state, because it has its own logic, because it has its own interests that are not necessarily subordinated to capitalism, that have evolved to like contain like what capitalism has like in order to stabilize it. That if if capitalism is truly unsustainable on a basic level that it will have to do things to move beyond it. I, well, on that, we actually might agree, but what mm-hmm. I think is, is states 
do not have an incentive and they have a structural disincentive to look at global problems outside of capital in a real way, even if they're That's a result true. of capital. And I mean, I, 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 you see this in China. China takes climate change seriously, but if you actually look at what it's doing, it's not that different from the capitalist world. Yeah. Whereas if, if we had global communism, it would, or when I say global communism, that sounds like, but if you had a bunch of communist States who were non-hostile to one another, Right. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. It's like you need non-hostile organizational patterns. Right. Like, I don't think you can have one complete world government overnight. That's ridiculous. But yeah. you would. But like if you had like, say, a worldwide planning pack with relative cultural autonomy, the areas, you know, um, you could you could deal with this. Yeah. And but it's, one state can't. And no the organizational differences are key here because even as we're seeing right now, like the crisis that everyone's dealing with isn't bringing people together. It's making them trust each other less and do things that, um, I mean, like, well, it's made NATO bigger, but like the, the German government now is like, Oh, we're going to have to reopen coal plants or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We're going to reopen, which is, which even as an alternative to nuclear is ridiculous. Yeah. But, um, and you see, like, like even though like Modi and and G are are technically like working together and kinda in regards to Russia, the Modi's on the U.S.'s side with the Quad, and also the real cooperation with, love, with Russia is actually between Russia and China is actually more limited than people admit. And neither Russia nor the U.S. want you to really realize that because it would endanger their propaganda. So, yeah. like, there's a bunch of counter incentives right now for states to actually cooperate even states that seem aligned because one of the things i've been pointing out is like i think europe is actually slightly more aggressive on this russia question than even the u.s wants and people would just say oh europe's just a bunch of u.s client states and i'm like i don't think that's actually that simple at all no Um, i mean it is it's it's weird with the dynamics of nato and this is actually very important is that what NATO meant and what the Warsaw Pact before it meant is that these big mega state organizations like this, the, Europe and the U.S. will never like be destroyed in a war. It's not going to happen. The only way it'll happen, like that the, these countries or institutions as like we know them will go away is if they collapse internally like the USSR did. And that is a fundamental consequence of nuclear weapons and as a, as a strategic weapon. Right. Um, Which also means, though, the old war way out of profitability crisis. Is yes, no it's viable because it would lead to human extinction. So <laughs> unless you let natural disasters do the work for you, which we'll, we have yet to see. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, like, this is where this is where the like some people think like I I, I was talking to a friend who, who takes this declining rate of profit stuff like very mechanistically it's like we're going to have a war because capital is i'm like that's not how this works no. like like no one no one planned world war ii my friends like this was not a capital conspiracy to restop profitability it was a bunch of individual incentives that incentivize conflict the um which was predicted off of i don't know if you read either bakar and Lenin on on imperialism was somewhat correct uh but then what they didn't predict was, you know, nuclear weapons making Mikowski assertion about uh, the cost of destruction actually correct. You know, and, it's, I mean, there's actually a funny way of reading about that, of reading this, that like there actually was a conspiracy and the conspiracy was by Hitler. 
Is that that was what he was trying to do, and it blew up in his face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're actually correct. But I also think, you know, it's one of these things where like, okay, the USSR is totally wrong on fascism. And if you took the right opposition and the left opposition of the USSR, so you took the car and it's Anatrotskyist and added them together, mm-hmm. you actually would have had a predictive because because uh, the 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 Trotskyists thought that fascism was too unstable to be a threat. Um, <laughs> unstable uh, things can be very threatening, right? <laughs> uh, because it, you know it's like it's an incoherent class allegiance between like the petty bourgeoisie and lumpen and and and, and then the the right oppositionists were like, it can do a lot of damage. We need we we need to get over our shit to to fight it, but we have to fight it in a very particular way. Are we going to reestablish capital? And that's the Austrian Marxist Bukharinus answer. Um, and if you added those two things together and then put the Soviet Union as the army, you probably could have done something about it much faster than you did, right? Well, unfortunately, I think right now the pieces of this analysis are similar, right? Like a lot of us have parts of the equation. And I, and I actually want to say that I think MMTers have parts of this equation, but we have not been looking at this together and we're so frankly tied up in academia and thus kind of removed from the material reality of the world in some ways that like not looking at the real cost of inflation on, on poor families was a big one. And if you go back and look at tweets from just two years ago, a lot of the, a lot of the reformist left looks really stupid because they they, they were talking about how like up to 10% inflation would be good because it devalues uh, debt. And that would free up a lot of, and I'm like, uh, one, People are a lot less debt leveraged than you think. Oh yeah, and it became they, a lot less because of the the COVID relief money. Right, exactly. Um, and two, which is its own problem, uh, which is by the way, for those of you who think we're going to get consumer, uh, um, that Biden is going to give you uh, a one time student loan forgiveness, I'm not putting money on it. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible. But, Actually, I think he's going to do it. I think because of the midterms, he's going to. I mean, they're saying they're going to do it. I think they they might actually do it because there's uh, nothing well, else. He has no lev- other lever for him to pull. That's interesting. But the thing is, what what does that do for like that creates the one time fix creates all kinds of other structural incentives and problems that I don't think people have looked at. Um, uh, but. What, what's funny is what I've seen even moderate Republicans trying to do is trying to make uh, discharging federal debts, I mean, uh, federal student loan debts, impossible. Yeah. Like the Romney bill, which which says if you're currently in IBR, if you're currently in uh, uh, um, uh, public service forgiveness, that they would, they would honor that. But after that, there'd be no way to discharge debts, and they aren't reinstating bankruptcy, which frankly would probably be super progressive in and of itself um uh, which would be a nightmare land because uh it would make student debt completely undischargeable for anyway like even by the fucking feds so like um i'll tell you it'll solve the problem of like i i can't imagine that anyone would go to like take on those federal loans anymore if, if that's what it was um, yeah, because yeah, it's funny because Republicans seem to think that people took on those federal loans in bad faith, or they agree. It's like, 
I've been reading that, and I'm like, you, you know, uh, boomer reactionaries, and there are a lot of them are point, these talking points. But I'm like, do y'all not understand that you can't declare bankruptcy on this? Like, yeah. I mean, it's already it's already really bad. It's, and I mean, I I, th- I got to believe that there's been some effect on, like, especially with COVID now that the with, with college admith- admissions, um, and I've heard that a lot of it is that like like admissions to a lot of places have gone down except for like the Ivies where everyone applies to. Right. Right. Um, right. I've, I've heard that too. Um, I think, I think we're about to have a massive educational crisis. And I also think, um, I also think we're going to see decrease. Actually, I know, I actually know this for a fact that like a lot of companies that were credentializing are now decredentializing for promotions and whatnot. And you know what that's, what, what this whole thing is going to do is that the, the critique about like elite overproduction and, uh, like the PMC stuff is going to become outdated real fast. Right. But some of it was outdated anyway, because yeah. some of it was based off shit from the seventies, but like, yeah. but yeah, I think you're right. Actually. I think, I think, I, I think what we're going to see is uh decredentialization. I, I also, but I also think like, fuck man, we might see stuff like the reversal of mandatory schooling being so high because you could, increase the labor force that way and we could return to having child labor um and if they're working maybe they're not shooting each other i don't know um i mean there when people talk about like the oh that there's some skills gap that certain industries aren't getting the graduates they want i mean it's true there's but it's part you're not getting around true only in coding though like encoding and some engineering jobs and stuff like that but it's not even like general stem that like like i've for the last 10 years there have been people screaming hey this stem crisis is actually just a way to lower stem job compensation like yeah like increase competition from right on the worker side um but i mean this is these are problems you're gonna have no matter what there's just informational asymmetries and changes in the business cycle that cause this that you will never get rid of and they'll always be complaining about it and there's nothing you can do about it besides having a better retraining program. Um, but even that has its limits. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nico. We're going to have you back on sometime soon. Uh, uh, these these discussions, people people seem to think I'm an MMT or I need to clarify that. <laughs> um, that that I that I'm not. Um, uh, and that we need to start looking at this profitability stuff seriously. And I, I, one thing I will say is a lot of vulgar Marxists have been really dumb about this as well because they don't separate out the kinds of profits in the system, and that's that, that's why they're confused. Like, um, be, they'll see all these fiscal profits and then think, oh, well, there's plenty of profitability, or like, all oh, this must be an illusion. And like, no, 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 no. It's it's like most of these are complex systems adjusting and they actually are adjusting to self to, to survive. Um, but they have long-term maladapted tendencies. And that was kind of a Marx point all the way back in the beginning. Like capital actually isn't irrational, but it's not going to be rational enough. Yeah. Um, and that's something to really think about. All right. Thank you for coming on. We'll see you again soon. Where can people check out your work? You can check out my Substack, the, the Philosophy of the Encounter, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the Prehistory of an Encounter, um, 
and uh, I put on a lot of stuff on Palladium and my Twitter handle you can see right there. All right, awesome. Take care. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening. Bye.